You're listening to In Search of Portland. This is a personal journey exploring the Rose City's most famous architectural and cultural landmarks, its forgotten gems, and the dreamers who populated them. My name is Brian Libby, and I've been exploring Portland's built environment for the past 20 years as a journalist and critic covering the city's architecture, arts, politics, and more. excited to share what I've learned and to learn along with you as we talk to a spectrum of creative minds and community leaders about how Portland became Portland and where we're headed. Since I first started writing about architecture in Portland about 20 years ago, it's always been fairly easy to name the top work of architecture created in that time, or at least my favorite which is the Wyden and Kennedy Agency World Headquarters by architect Brad Klopfill and his firm Allied Works Architecture. It's located in the Pearl District between Davis and Everett Streets and 12th and 13th Avenues. I sometimes call it a secular cathedral, which is all about the building's light-filled five-story atrium. It's pretty sweet. But if this is Portland's best work of 21st century architecture, the building actually dates to the early 20th century. It was originally constructed as the Fuller Paint Company building in 1908, and that speaks to the Pearl District's warehouse-filled past. Fuller Paint traces its origins to the firm of Fuller & Heather, which began in 1857 in Sacramento. The firm advertised itself as being importers and wholesale dealers in paints, oils, French window glass, brushes, varnishes, turpentine, glue, gold leaf, and artist materials. By the time Fuller Paint established its warehouse in Portland in 1908, the company had branches in many West Coast cities. This building today is part of what's known as the 13th Avenue Historic District, along the former railroad spur line between Northwest Davis and Johnson Streets, in an area once known as the Northwest Triangle. Originally residential in character, the area developed as a warehousing and distribution center as a result of Portland's emergence as a world seaport and railway hub following the explosive growth of the city after the 1905 Lewis and Clark Exposition. It's not a coincidence that the Fuller Paint Company building was constructed just three years later. Though these may have been just warehouses, which today would be built in a cheap, utilitarian, industrial way, These ones were designed in the early 20th century very thoughtfully and with great materials by some of the city's best architects, such as William Knighton. Characteristic features of this district include rooftop water towers, loading docks, and remnants of the old Belgian cobblestones first laid out on the street here instead of asphalt. After 38 years as the home of Fuller Paint, in 1946 the building went cold. Which is not to say it went unoccupied, but that it became essentially one city block-sized refrigerator, a cold storage warehouse. But you might say that all that refrigeration kept the architecture from rotting away. Flash forward to the 1990s, and it was time for the Fuller Paint Company building to come out of the cold storage and take on vibrant new life, not just as a great work of architecture, but as home to perhaps the top advertising agency in the world, Widening Kennedy. But to do that, the company called on a then largely unknown architect in his mid-40s who, so far, had been best known for designing a bar, but after this commission would become known as the top Portland architect of his generation, Brad Klopfill. Born in 1956 and raised in suburban Metzger, which in those days was less about strip malls and chain stores and more about having easy access to the outdoors, 
The young Clopeville spent time exploring fields and forests as a kid, and later, as a teen, driving to the Oregon coast or the Columbia Gorge, drawing everything he saw on long newsprint scrolls. The first time Clopeville applied to architecture school, he was rejected, but he ultimately went on to study at the University of Oregon in the 1970s, at a time when the architecture school faculty there was blessed with having numerous disciples of legendary modernist architect Louis Kahn, creator of the landmark Salk Institute in San Diego. At the University of Oregon, Clopeville learned a thoughtful, soulful version of modernism, and that only continued as he went off out into the world, working for the great Swiss architect Mario Botta, for example, and then returning to New York City, where he not only studied at Columbia University as a grad student, but also fell under the spell of great minimalist artists of the time, such as Donald Judd. Then Clopeville and his wife reluctantly returned to Portland, lacking the resources and confidence to establish a New York architecture firm. So at first in Portland, Clopeville worked for one of his old University of Oregon professors, Thomas Hacker, whose work we considered in a previous episode of this podcast on the Mercy Corps headquarters. For Hacker's firm, Clopeville was a key designer on what became the nation's first all-digital library, 1991's Biomedical Information Communication Center at Oregon Health and Science University. By 1994, Clopeville was ready to finally establish his own shop, and Allied Works was born. Before the Widening Kennedy Commission, the best-known Allied Works design was for Saucebox, that bar. But one of Saucebox's regular denizens was Dan Wyden, co-founder of the advertising agency that had gained fame in the 1980s with memorable, award-winning commercials for Nike, Coca-Cola, and so many others. Dan Wyden met David Kennedy in 1980 at the William Kane Advertising Agency in Portland while working on the Nike account. The two took Nike with them as their client after founding Wyden and Kennedy on April 1, 1982. Then by 2002, the Gun Report had named Wyden and Kennedy as the most awarded agency in the world, and the ad agency was also named by Adweek in 2000 as the global ad agency of the year. Remember the famous Nike slogan, Just Do It? That was Dan Wyden's idea. Remember the Bo Nose commercials featuring Bo Jackson for Nike, or Spike Lee's Mars Blackman commercials with Michael Jordan? That was widening Kennedy, too. How about Charles Barkley's I Am Not a Role Model campaign for right guard deodorant? Or the ESPN long-running This Is Sports Center series, featuring athletes working administrative jobs at the cable channel? That was widening Kennedy, too. So were those cute polar bears in a series of Coke commercials, and more recently, some of the spots you've seen for Old Spice, Dodge, Bud Light, Microsoft, and many more. The widening Kennedy building still looks like an old, early 20th century warehouse from the inside. But what's really special is how the design carves a light-filled atrium in the middle, a kind of building within a building. At the base of the building is a 400-seat auditorium, and above, the atrium is crisscrossed with catwalks. The whole thing is made out of beautiful reclaimed wood and some of the most exquisitely smooth concrete you've ever seen. It's very Portland in that, instead of a trophy, this architecture is all about the interior experience. It's soulful and not showy. So today we're first going to talk with Portland's most acclaimed living architect, Brad Clopeville, about his career and about the widening Kennedy building that sent his firm into orbit. After all, since this commission, Allied Works has gone on to design landmark buildings around the country, including the Museum of Art and Design in New York City, the St. Louis Contemporary Art Museum, the Clifford Still Museum in Denver, and an expansion of the Seattle Art Museum, not to mention the expansion of Providence Park here in Portland, the home of the Portland Timbers. Then in our second interview, we're going to talk with Danny Sheniak, who has spent the past 23 years at Widen and Kennedy, 
working on a variety of Nike campaigns in particular, and watching the company go from its old headquarters downtown into this new old Pearl District headquarters. I have to confess that one of Widening Kennedy's more recent ad campaigns actually drives me nuts, the Dilly Dilly series for Bud Light. But maybe for that reason, or because I've rambled on for quite a while now, there's no time to dilly-dally. Let's open the doors to this paint warehouse and former oversized refrigerator and find out how a secular cathedral was born again. Brad, Brad, thanks for joining us. It's great, great to be here. So, uh, um, I've been a fan uh, of your work, obviously, for a long time and, and a lot of different projects. But uh, with that in mind, I'd like to begin by asking you about influences. And, and I, I first remember something you said to me in an interview many years ago. Um, you talked about the idea of, at least in some abstract way, about the Oregon landscape itself being kind of an influence on you as an architect. And I find this idea interesting and something in some way that other architects have said to me over the years, that a way that almost like the idea that, you know, like Mount Hood is our Empire State Building or something. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Growing up in Oregon, when I did, one could uh, say, I think without being too harsh, that, you know, it's, it's not a place where buildings have tremendous presence. Mm-hmm. The presence comes from other forces and other things. Mm-hmm. And so I think just as a as a kid growing up, or as as any layperson, the places that moved you, the first places that moved you were probably landscape. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Were you yeah. much of a camper or that kind of thing as a kid? You know, or your later later in in high school and in college, absolutely, mm-hmm. I started getting out. I mean, I used to I used to in in high school. I had I had a Triumph TR4, uh-huh. <laughs> and I would take it. Uh, I would drive from Carlton over the road, over the Cascade Range, down the Nestucca River. Uh-huh. Just, oh, like uh, through those back roads. Yeah, like, just uh, to get away. Yeah. yeah, that was my my sort of solitude pilgrimage. Uh, and I've had various of those over the years. Now, now I'm going to the Strawberry Martin, the mountains tomorrow. Oh, wonderful! But That's no, I, th- I think it's it's only because you you are drawn to what moves you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and the first thing that really moved me was was landscape. Yeah. Yeah. I felt for me personally that I had to sort of get out of Oregon and get out of Portland to sort of appreciate some of the qualities it had and and mm-hmm. be sort of uh, enriched by other places and other ideas. And so um, what about some of the time you spent away from Portland, like, uh, you know, soaking up the influence of everyone from architects to, you yeah. know, Richard Serra, let's say? I mean, I've never been a a real student of architecture, actually. Mm-hmm. Never been necessarily even a follower of architecture, but I am, <laughs> I am drawn to beautiful places, powerful places. Um, mm-hmm. As I said before, things that move you. And when I went to Europe for the first time, again, when it was I a junior, and I actually then were able was able to walk into rooms that moved me for the first time: Gothic cathedrals, mm-hmm. Roman ruins. You know those. Those moments, medieval cities, you know, so that sense of landscape, awe and wonder that's here was translated to buildings. Mm -hmm. And it all kind of came together. Mm -hmm. You know, the pursuit came together. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, let's flash forward a little bit to the early days of Allied Works, uh, maybe in the days leading up to Widening Kennedy. You know, you've got, you're you're full of these ideas about um, art and architecture and stuff. And then, you know, architects start their careers by doing oftentimes like kitchens and bathrooms (laughs) and stuff. And so, you know... uh, 
you found yeah. your way. I think of a uh, of Allied Works uh, leading up to Whiting Kennedy. I think of the the Saucebox restaurant and bar as yeah. being a kind of milestone for you, and and you really made that something special. Your firm did, and and so, so um, what about those kind of what do you think about or how do you reflect on those early days when nobody really knew who you were and you probably had a lot of ambition, but we're just getting started. And somebody had somebody like Bruce Carey at Saucebox, let's say. Uh, or some of the other people earlier in your career really had to give you a chance. Maybe, maybe had to make a little bit of a leap. I, I, I'm not. I, I love Bruce, but I'm not giving him that much credit. He in Sansmak, he asked me to uh, remodel the bathrooms, bringing up the handicap code. That's what I was hired for. And I convinced him that he needed to actually remodel the whole restaurant and do what do what we did and uh-huh. started that. But yeah, that was. That's funny. That's great. I mean, architecture is a funny, funny business. I mean, it's really a vocational trade. You know, I think mm-hmm. a lot of people go into architecture just for the joy of crafting things, you mm-hmm. know. So you do a kitchen remodel or a bathroom remodel. I mean, it's, but there's still an intense gratification mm-hmm. of just making something better. Yeah. You know, and, and just doing it really well and making it viscerally beautiful. and mm-hmm. So there's that element of architecture. People, I think, no one goes into architecture without a love of just that kind of somewhat banal joy of, yeah. of, of making something better like that. Yeah. But it was really when I got Wyden and Kennedy. That was the first patronage project mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where it was just the door to ideas was wide open. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And all I had to do was walk through. Yeah. Well, you know, you talked about convincing Bruce Carey to let you do more with Saucebox, and I'm I'm kind of curious about um, you the the sort of talent you have in an interview process, and it, it it's tied to something I find more broadly interesting about <clears throat> being an architect is kind of the combination of different skill sets that that go into being an architect, and mm-hmm. and you know you have to be a little bit of a charmer to sort of or or, a, or at least a good communicator to be able to um, you know for lack of a better word, sell the potential client on your ideas or convince them. And so, you know, you had you had to kind of, um, you know, charm Dan Wyden and John C.J. and some of the other people at <laughs> Wyden and Kennedy and, and make them believe. And so it, it seems like I feel like I've heard people say over the years that you're good uh-huh. at that. Like, you know, I remember somebody I from the St. Louis Contemporary talking about how you just kind of effortlessly started drawing in the interview and stuff. And mm-hmm. so, you know, what... What do you think about your own ability to sort of make a potential client on Winding Kennedy or otherwise see your ideas? What was that conversation with the Winding Kennedy people like? Well, I, I don't think I'm a very good salesperson, actually, to tell you the truth. <laughs> I mean, I would have a much bigger office if I was. Uh-huh. Uh, and I compete against people who are really you know, masterful. Mm-hmm. So I, I know what the masters mm-hmm. of sales look like. I won't name names. And I, maybe sales is the wrong word because but that no, implies no, no. a lack of authenticity. Yeah, and there is a tremendous lack of authenticity mm. in the architecture trade. Persuasion, let's say. Yes. No, my uh, my passion is ideas. So if, if I can, if I have some insight about the nature of a problem or the possibilities of something, then I get excited. And when I get excited, it's like anything else. It's like you, everyone. You know, you get mm-hmm. excited, you can be compelling, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but you have to to be really, you know. Uh, interested and excited. You have to have something to say. And did you have a, a firm idea mm-hmm. going into that Winding Kennedy interview of what you felt like it, the building wanted, or or what? Well, we were didn't you have a building. About? You know, ah. we, didn't, we didn't. They didn't even know. I didn't know anything. They they interviewed me three times. All I knew is they were in eight different buildings downtown, mm-hmm. and they wanted to be in one building. And you know, we didn't know what building or where or anything else. And I went three interviews, and I think the one that really 
maybe convince them, and, and John was in this interview as well, Susan Hoffman and others, is I, I had a book on uh, Donald Judd's studio in Marfa. And I basically, or literally just passed the book around. Mm -hmm. And I said, don't we all just want to work in that space? <laughs> right? Yeah. Which is true. Yeah. Right? And I think the fact that I wasn't talking about office space or anything, mm -hmm. but just the kind of beautiful places to work in with amazing space and amazing light, I think that got to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, because architecture is such a jargon-filled field and especially workspace. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so what about as they, as you and they started to look at this 1908 <clears throat> cold storage warehouse, uh, did, did that excite you or scare you or both? Well, I, I <clears throat> excuse me, I kind of discovered it, I guess. I was driving by and they were just starting to tear the, you know, the openings were all bricked in because it was a cold storage building. They were trying to tear those open and I thought, well, you know, maybe we would fit in there, you mm -hmm. know, because that was after we did some initial programming and understand how big they had to be because mm -hmm. they had no idea even how <laughs> big a space they were looking for. They just hired an architect. Anyway, um, somehow I reached out to them, found out, you know, it's probably through realtors, whatever. And uh, and then showed it to Dan. I remember walking through, and, and he literally said, "There's no way in hell we're moving into this building." <laughs> That's a quote. Are you crazy? And on and on and on. And I said, "Let me show you. Just let me show you what's possible." Uh -huh. And it, it it seems pretty. Um, when I visit the Widening Kennedy now building now, or when other people do, you you see that wonderful atrium, and it, it it's easy to kind of trick the mind that it was intuitive and that it called out to you. But um, I happened to get talking uh, a few months ago with a couple of your uh, former colleagues, John Weil and Chris Bixby, and yeah. and I, my eyes kind founding, of lit up. Those are founding members. Yeah, of yeah. Um, they, uh, they talked about kind of the evolution of ideas that led to that atrium. And mm -hmm. I'm not going to say it was necessarily something radically different that you explored first, but what about yeah. that kind of, what were some of the ex explorations that you made about what that design wanted to be? I sort of saw the building as a piece of clay mm -hmm. that we could carve up and perforate and puncture. And and so we looked at it that way. My charcoal sketches were that way. We did we did models of the whole building by cutting up blocks of individual offices and conference rooms and stacking them up to mm -hmm. equal the massing and show the kind of transparencies and light wells and openings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we just, we probably, we must have studied that building in a hundred different ways. Yeah. To tell you the truth. Great, yeah. Great fun. You uh -huh. know, uh -huh. it was really, really fun. But, uh, so we, we reduced it to like two or three different examples and Dan chose the one. I drew the atrium one as the most obvious one. Mm -hmm. and it's the one I did not want, adamantly did not want. And of course Dan chose it <laughs> and he chose it, he chose it because he wanted everybody to be in one room. Mm -hmm. He wanted the whole 450, which now I think there's 650 people in that, that uh -huh. building. Everyone to be in that one space together. That was his desire. And if you didn't love, if you didn't want him to choose that one, what what was the one that you thought was best at the time? You'd have to look at the drawings, but it had it had a kind of pinwheel of openings that interlocked, and mm -hmm. it was just it was more spatially complex and probably more spatially interesting, but mm -hmm. wouldn't have served them at all. And then, of course, once we got into I mean, Dan did this two or three times in that process where he was maddeningly right. <laughs> he did that a few times uh -huh. where I really was disagreeing with him adamantly and it ended up being right. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. But once we got into it, we saw the potential of that single room and it was pretty exciting. You know, it, it, it strikes me, you know, what a what a creative artist or architect needs, what, what the kind of right 
sort of client or situation is. Like I, I happen to be reading a biography of George Lucas right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in a way, like his entire career journey was about um, gaining the freedom to have no one tell him no. Um, mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. he he had fewer people telling him no on the prequel trilogy that everybody kind of agrees is not as good as right. the original Star Wars yeah. trilogy. And maybe right. there are other reasons for that. But, you know, there were some people pushing back just a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. you know, this dialogue's still a little wooden, George, or mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And, you know, that's why the original Star Wars, to me, is a masterpiece, maybe Empire mm-hmm. 2, and none of the prequels are. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, that's an oversimplification. But, mm-hmm. you know, what do you think about clients and sort of what what you found is the right mix of pushback versus freedom? Well, I think public arts, you know, film, architecture, what, whatever, whatever else. I mean, I, I think that that rub, you know, the, the, the rub of dialogue, the, the kind of wearing down of forces, if you will, mm-hmm. um, is required to really offer something to the public that's engaging. You know, it's not like making art. Mm-hmm. You know, making art is an individual act. It really is just for the artist, and mm-hmm. if it offers us insights, then it's better. We consider it to be better and good and profound. But but, but you know, film, theater, you know, certainly architecture requ- requires, I think, that process of mm-hmm. kind of grinding away. It certainly does for me. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and we if we if the clients don't do it, we do it internally. You know, so yeah, yeah. Well, you know. Um, Wyden has received a whole lot of acclaim over the years, and I personally feel like in my 20 or so years of writing about architecture, that's I, I pretty often call it the number one architectural space design kind of in my career. Mm-hmm. And so nice. what do you feel like people are responding to? I, I, I could sort of make guesses, of course, about the sort of light and volume and mm-hmm. any atrium. Those are some of the things that you respond to. But, you know, something more is happening here than it just being an atrium with light. And, and um, you know, I've I've it sounds maybe slightly corny, but I've almost called mm-hmm. it like a secular cathedral or something, well, you know. And, and so, you know, what do you feel like you guys got right? What are people responding to when they love it? It's It's so interesting you say that. Because it was one of the high points of of the building, I was when it was done. I was walking through a Presbyterian minister. I can't remember his name because mm-hmm. I never saw him again. And he said, "You made a church," and <laughs> it was one of the greatest compliments. I, I think, you know, back to the landscape, back to the cathedrals of my college days. I think the pursuit of the ineffable. I think, in a way, all of all of my spaces. Uh, aspire to be spiritual space mm-hmm. because it's that it, I think we call it that because it, there are spaces that move you have a sense of wonder can't be summarized in an image or in, in a sentence you know there's a quality that you just can't quite describe mm-hmm. and we don't know that when we're designing it we're aspiring to it we mm-hmm. hope it'll have those layers of perception and meaning and experience and the kind of richness over time and all of that but you really have no idea until it's done. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a simple concrete box mm-hmm. inserted in a block, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there's something about it that is more than that, more than the sum of the parts. And I think that's what you, that's what you hope. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's been you know close to twenty years or so uh, wow. since Winding Kennedy and and Allied Works has gone on quite a journey since then <laughs> and and designed uh, you know really landmark projects around the country. Uh, um, 
big museums in in big cities, New York, Seattle, um, uh, other places. And and so, um, you know, do you feel like it's Winding Kennedy that kind of set you on that path or maybe that it set you up for that Mm -hmm. St. Louis Contemporary uh, Design Commission or, or, you know, with the Brad of... Uh, 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 just off the Winding Kennedy building, what what would that guy mm-hmm. have thought of of where you are now? Would you have been kind of just you think just as I planned, or or <laughs> you know, holy crap, I can't believe it, you know? That's really funny. No, uh, it's it's incomprehensible. Actually, mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. were just talking about that with with the with the building of the of the Timbers edition, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the addition to Providence Park. We were just talking about that. I would have no idea I'd be here today. Yeah. Absolutely no idea. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's, it's, and I've said this many, many times, but Dan giving me that opportunity, you know, when I got that phone call um, and he asked me if we could do this, and I said, yes, absolutely. When I had two employees, mm-hmm. John and Chris, mm-hmm. <laughs> frankly, you know, there's no way in hell we could actually do that. Uh-huh. Um, but I said, yes. And, and it really ch- changed everything, put everything in motion. Because when the people from the St. Louis Contemporary came to Portland and I walked, the building wasn't even done yet. But I walked them through that space. Mm-hmm. That was that kind of closed the deal, and that building still has that effect on clients. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if they're asking for a museum or office space or any building type. Mm-hmm. It's just the quality of that space mm-hmm. is still so, so moving. Maybe finally, uh, you had mentioned uh, a second ago the uh, the expansion of Providence Park that that your firm was mm-hmm. responsible for, and and uh, I'm going over there actually for an Architecture Foundation of Oregon event this afternoon to check oh. it out for the first time, and I'm really excited. And uh, um, I've been hearing all kinds of raves from from Timbers fans and everybody, and you know that that to me is also this Providence Park expansion as it relates to Allied Works is also part of a kind of a neat larger story that in in, in recent years the the firm has begun to have uh, leave a little bit more of a mark in the central city of Portland with the the PNCA headquarters and the Oregonian building and now this and and um, you know some of them are renovations and then you know there's some opportunities like you say for new construction but um, what's it been like to have to to kind of make a mark in in the city again especially you know I think of Allied Works in some ways as being kind of the successor to like a Pietro Belusky or an E. Doyle but the biggest difference until recently is that the central city is sprinkled with buildings by those guys and, yeah. and in until recently, there weren't, you know, too many allied buildings. And now that's starting to change, and it's really exciting. And so, you know, is that just kind of the ebb and flow of how things go, or or, or is it more intentional to kind of um, be, you know, having more of a presence in Portland again? Well, I've, I've always wanted to have a presence in Portland. It's where I'm from. It's, you know, my favorite place. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just being asked to do something. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's also, you know, those stories where you never get to work in your hometown. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of stories like that. I don't think they hired Frank Gehry to do anything in L.A. Yeah. Until 25 years into his career. Yeah. So it's a pattern, I think. Um, but I've always wanted to do things here. still want to do things here. Because mm-hmm. um, we, we, myself and everyone in the office, care so deeply about the place. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things we were talking about after it was finished and so beloved. Um, and we are so thrilled with the outcome, uh, especially in a building type that we'd never done before, mm-hmm. uh, and a very difficult site and very difficult problem, um, is that if we were ever going to do a building in Portland, you know, if, if the choice was a new symphony hall or an art museum mm-hmm. or the Timber Stadium, I think we would all choose the stadium. <laughs> I, I think on the kind of resonance and the impact of that on the community 
is is probably greater mm-hmm. than any other building we could do here. So well, in a way, it, it <clears throat> relates to that sense of wonder that you were talking about mm-hmm. earlier. That it can come from the landscape, or it can come from a cathedral, but it it also can happen in certain sports environments. Like uh, you does. and I are both Oregon Ducks fans, and does, and you know, being it? in Autzen Stadium um, when a great moment right. happens is right. is electrifying, and it's not entirely dissimilar to the sense of wonder you get from looking at a great painting or something like that. It, you know, it's, it's being moved, like you say. It is being moved, and and. Sp- Sports does that, and sports does that. I mean, sports really are. Uh, sports have become our our, our churches mm-hmm. and stadiums, our cathedral, for, mm-hmm. for better or worse. But it, it seems to be true at this mm-hmm. cultural moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but why do there have to be so many sports fans who seem to also be Trump fans? <laughs> well, I don't know if that's the case. <laughs> Maybe American football. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I guess so. I'm a big football fan. <laughs> Me too. And, so, so, you know. and I'm not a Trump fan. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, Brad, well, thank you so much for talking with us, with us today. Uh, what a pleasure. Okay, thank you. It was great fun. Support for this podcast and for X-Ray comes from Mutual Materials, providing masonry and hardscape products to architects, designers, and homeowners. Whether it's brick, block, pavers, retaining walls, or stone veneer, Mutual Materials helps you create long-lasting indoor and outdoor spaces. Visit Mutual Materials' new showroom in Northwest Portland or one of its 18 locations across the Pacific Northwest. To find more information, ideas, and project photos, visit mutualmaterials.com. Mutual Materials, building beauty that lasts. Danny Sheniak is a veteran of 23 years at the legendary creative agency Widening Kennedy, which has produced some of the most iconic advertising campaigns of our time for clients including Nike, Coca-Cola, ESPN, Dodge, Old Spice, and many, many more. I think I personally watched most of them on television at one point or another. Um, Really, if there's a commercial that you've loved in the last 25-plus years, it's maybe a coin flip over whether or not this one agency produced it. And uh, Danny has spent his entire career at Widening Kennedy, uh, starting in 1996 after graduating from Syracuse University. So uh, you're an orange, used to be orange man, I guess it's just orange now. Um, and uh, that means he was also at Widening Kennedy for the big move from the uh, to the new headquarters from the old Deacon building. And uh, um, he's been uh, working on the Nike account for his entire tenure at uh, Widening Kennedy and uh, is now the agency's global communications plan Planning director. Uh, Danny is based in Portland and also spends a significant amount of time in China, Japan, Brazil, and Europe, lucky guy, uh, and helping to grow and inspire the Whiting Kennedy slash Nike team around the world. Um, and obviously, we're quite glad to have him here today. Uh, Danny, thanks a bunch for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So, uh, like I mentioned in the intro, you're one of the people from Wine and Kennedy who was there in the old building, and uh, um, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about making that transition, and I'm wondering also just kind of if you could talk a little bit about who you guys were in 1996, uh, 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 the kind of the larger you, <laughs> uh, like the who the company was, who the agency was, like what its DNA was, how how similar it was today, or or how different in terms of the you know size or personality, and and uh, what was it like making that transition? Well, I, I guess in '96 when I first came to Portland and started working at Winding Kennedy, um, I was 21 years old. I was fresh out of college, mm-hmm. 
and I dreamed of working on Nike advertising, just mm-hmm. like you. Grew up with sports and all the icons of Bo and Jordan and Griffey, mm-hmm. um, and I was lucky enough to get a job there. So coming to that building in 96, knowing that that was where it was all happening, this is Sports Center, was a huge part of, for me as a kid, just part of the my sports love. Yeah. Um, I just remember going there and thinking, number one, oh my God, I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> and number two... I'm around all these crazy people that are just dreaming up all sorts of amazing things right now. Uh-huh. And I just remember being like a bright-eyed kid, green as day, and just just suck, sucking everything in because there were so many talented people. There was, I just remember just it was just ideas. People uh-huh. were just like all about dreaming up the next cool thing. Um, and that happened in the building, in the Deacon building. Uh-huh. It happened in the bars around the corner. It happened in the restaurants. It just felt like it was this – someone describes it sometimes that you're never going to find all the people at Winding County. You'll only find them at either at an airport or in jail because <laughs> it's like all these crazy fucking walks of life that have come from all over the planet to Portland, Oregon because they were inspired by what Dan and Dave built that you could come here, be yourself, and make the best work of your lives. Yeah. And I remember being a 21-year-old kid and feeling like – because you're in college and you hear about – Here's how a corporate company works, and here's like a process, and here's all these things. And then somehow you find yourself in this place where it is about imagination, freedom, and the ability to pull off the impossible. Yeah. It's like magic. Do you remember any of the campaigns that would have been happening then? You know, I was trying to think as you were saying that, like what would have been happening in the country in 96. It was like Bill Clinton over Bob Dole in the election. You know, it was maybe a year or so after Kurt Cobain died. Um, So do you remember anything going on at the company in those days in terms of the creative work? I do. I remember um, Little Penny was pretty hot and heavy (laughs) when I I got there. Anthony Hardaway. Yeah, yeah. The the Orlando Orlando Magic. Magic. Uh Um, Jordan. So I remember Frozen Moment. I remember... The failure spot when that ran. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were also uh, about to start the fun police. The thing I do remember, actually, I should get back to this. I started in August of 96, which is the Atlanta Olympics. Uh-huh. So you don't win silver, you lose gold in that huge, massive campaign. Yeah. But literally, two weeks after I started, one of the first things I worked on was Tiger Woods was playing at the amateur Pumpkin Ridge. Yep. I remember and- that. And uh, that was like a huge sensation, the phenom, Tiger Woods. Yeah, that was like a playoff, right? Yeah. And uh, I remember uh, he signed with Nike. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, Jim Risbon, a famous Latin creative. Now a great photographer. Yeah. He uh, wrote the Hello World spot. It was Tiger's first dad. Mm -hmm. And I remember Tiger and his father and his mother uh, came to the office in the Deacon building. Mm -hmm. And I remember Jim in the lobby with with, uh, Wyden showing Tiger and his family his first spot. And literally the whole agency is gathered in this room together, like cheering on Tiger. And in your mind, you're like, oh my God, he just finished the amateur. He's now in the office. He's now the next sensation of golf. Mm -hmm. And I just remember me as this 21-year-old kid, just like, oh my God, what is going on here? Yep. And I just remember that was when I really kind of knew what I had gotten myself into, Uh that who knew that this little place in Portland, Oregon, and all these dreamy, crazy people that want to do all this amazing stuff are able to take some of the most iconic things on the planet and scale it to the world? 
It's like a, I think of those ESPN Sports Center commercials that ran for years where they would just be like famous athletes, like, you know, making copies or something in the ESPN offices. And it's almost like in a moment like that, it was like it actually was coming true in the Widening Kennedy offices. Like, oh, there goes Michael Jordan on the way to the bathroom or something, you know, like because so many of the greatest athletes of our time have been signed with Nike. I, I'm a tennis fan and I think of until recently both uh, Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal being signed to Nike. Then you have the greatest golfer of our time, the greatest basketball player of our time and, and so many more. And so, you know, it's it's funny to think of that that Sports Center commercial. You know, I remember the commercial where Roger Clemens was making uh, photocopies of, of K's like to represent <laughs> strikeouts that could be hung uh, in the rafters from Yan- Yankee Stadium. Uh, you know, uh, little did we know then that those were, you know, steroid induced K's. Uh, uh, but still, uh, you know, it's it's just, you know, I, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall there too. I, I feel lucky I was there at that moment in time during the 90s, because I feel like the 90s kind of was like the collision course of sports, entertainment, hip-hop, culture, the internet. Like, literally, that was the time where it all kind of exploded. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I think I've been lucky enough to kind of watch the digital transformation of the world when I started my career, and you know, through the phone and social and all the other things that have happened. Mm-hmm. Um but the purity of that time was just a bunch of people trying to tell awesome stories to make people believe in sports and believe that um, anybody can be an athlete. Like, I think everyone, I don't want to say it's like a cult, mm-hmm. but it, everyone just really believed and wanted to do anything they could to be a part of it. Yeah, yeah. I think that's one of the cool parts that I think transfers to the new building, that DNA mm-hmm. of that drive of how do we keep pushing and keep evolving and changing and dreaming the impossible mm-hmm. and having a place where you have the freedom to be yourself and do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would say, I'm just thinking about it now, that that is kind of the common relationship. I think, I feel like that's what Dan and Dave built, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, whether it's 1990 or whether it's 2019, that kind of environment and freedom and the focus on make something that you'll be super proud of and that people will go, holy fuck, I can't believe they just did that. Mm-hmm. I feel like that is still what drives most people there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and yet you're, you're midstream with these longtime clients and probably under tremendous pressure to, to create, to, to produce this great content. And you're physically moving offices from, you know, we've talked about the Deacon building. It's a wonderful old 19th century building, you know, very old kind of stone downtown building. And then you go to this kind of light filled atrium there and you you probably didn't have too much time to 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 think about it, you know, like you're thinking about deadlines and all that stuff. But, um, you know, was it a seamless transition or or did some of you kind of walk around going like, whoa, where are we? <laughs> well, it's funny. I remember uh, when they were they bought the space and they were building the new building and they would do tours like every like once a month. You mm-hmm. could like get the hard hat, go through the uh, the new building you never in your wildest imagination could imagine what it became. Mm-hmm. It was pretty much that old cold storage warehouse and the white beams. Yep. And you didn't imagine that atrium until it was finished. But I just remember just going over there and thinking, oh, my God, what is this going to be? They keep like giving me these architectural designs and then this is going to be over there and that's going to be over there. And and then when you went in, when it was finally done, you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe they created this place. Yeah. Yeah. It, was, it was kind of like a, a wild experience. But in terms of the transition, I remember I sat on and, and I shared an office with somebody on the seventh floor. And I remember before Christmas break, it was like, pack up all your stuff, label it. Mm-hmm. And everyone had so much stuff, especially like all the artifacts yeah. from, you know, 
there were so many people that collected all the different advertising, and especially me. I love collecting things. Yeah. And I was definitely a hoarder of sneakers, posters, um, all the kind of cool things that kind of like happened around Nike and ESPN and all the other clients. So I remember you had to scale back. So some of it I took home and just kind of kept... And then a lot of it, I wanted to move into the new building. Mm -hmm. But your space was different. Yeah. So I remember just trying to figure out how are you going to configure what yeah. I had in the old building into the new building. Yeah, like this glass wall is not quite right for my yeah. doc my Dr. J poster totally. or something. And some of the stuff was going into storage. And it's like, am I ever going to access storage again? Where the hell is the storage? What uh -huh. is the storage? Um, but I just remember everybody packing up all their stuff. And in the hallways, you would just see this like landfill of all this crazy stuff that I bet every single person that worked in that Deacon building and packed up mm -hmm. wishes they could go back and not recycle some things or not give it to Goodwill. Yeah. Because it's probably super valuable and super collectible now. Yeah. But in the time, you probably were just cleaning up. Uh -huh. And a lot of that stuff is what, especially like sneaker culture and and all the rest of it would have loved. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you were talking about uh, Dan Wyden and David Kennedy earlier, referred to them. And, and so especially uh, I wanted to ask you about Dan Wyden. And it's not to, to discount the Kennedy and Wyden and Kennedy, but he retired uh, in the 90s. And so, um, you know, I wonder if you could sort of talk about Dan Wyden and what his talents are and what he brings. You know, uh, I suppose we might mention like he's the father of the just do it slogan, for mm -hmm. example, but he's a lot more than just a slogan writer, of course. And so, like, um, uh, wh what's important to know about Dan Wyden, you know, the person or the mm -hmm. advertising guru or anything? Well, first thing I would say is I know Kennedy may have retired, but he's still there every single day, <laughs> which he's he just turned 80, and he literally is in that studio every day, and everyone worships him uh -huh. just because he's such a craftsman and he so believes in design and art and you know, how do you help young people? Like seeing him in that building every every day, I think makes everyone just like, you just want to hug the guy mm -hmm. and like just hear what he has to say. But I feel like the two of them together, just mm -hmm. in terms of like a team and usually in advertising, there's the writer and the art director that I felt like they were just like this great yin and yang. Mm -hmm. of, um, Dan is, you know, he's like the most soulful manual meet in the world. And he is kind of like, the guy that's like, we're going to the moon, mm -hmm. and everyone believes we're going to the moon. We don't know exactly how we're going to fucking do it, mm -hmm. but we're going there. <laughs> and and I feel like he has he believes in people. He believes in creativity. I believe he believes in diversity, and um, he's definitely a person that wants to make the the world a better place. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I think the values probably of Oregon and growing up here um, is distilled in the people that work there. Yeah. You yeah, know, and I feel like that's a huge part of um, why the place has been so successful. I think the DNA of David and Dan um, of doing the right thing, being a good human being, mm -hmm. um, treating people with respect and treating your audience or consumers in our case with respect – I think is the thing that kind of will last forever. Yeah. And speaking of which, um, I'd like to ask you about something that I've talked about with John Jay over the years when he was at Widen, uh, this idea of the relationship between advertising and the broader culture, or, or more specifically, um, I'm interested in, in this idea that 
uh, an agency can be a kind of cultural incubator, and and it's not just about pre, uh, producing a certain kind of creative content, but also being a kind of curator or or providing a kind of distillation of of the things that you're finding out there that inspire advertising, but might also inspire people in other ways, like uh, and and being uh, a seeker of of cultural authenticity in a certain respect. Like I remember John talking about um, uh, doing a Nike basketball campaign uh, that involved just really talking to a lot of people in the New York basketball world and letting them tell their story. And so, um, you know, what do you think about that relationship and that idea of uh, an agency like Widen being a kind of crucial incubator or, or, or is there like a responsibility there or is it just um, part of the fun or what do you think of that whole idea? I think everything that we're going to do when it comes to advertising is probably going to be a truth about the client and their product and their values and their heart. Mm -hmm. And we're going to express it to the world. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes that can lead into how do you clash culture with the communication we're going to create, mm -hmm. whether it's Bugs Bunny and Michael Jordan or whether it's what John was talking about of street basketball in New York mm -hmm. um, or even – uh, the Coca-Cola ad with all the great characters with the Macy's Day Parade. Yeah. That Wyden loves to mash things together and, and create things that you weren't expecting. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes that requires how do you connect with culture in a really cool way. And, mm -hmm. and I think we've done it a lot of different ways over the years. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes it's saying the thing that people are afraid to say mm -hmm. and standing up for people. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes it's listening to the voice of the athlete when it comes to Nike. Mm -hmm. You know, if an athlete has something to say, Nike's been awesome about kind of like helping them say that to the world. Yeah, um, yeah. So I feel like that's where, I feel like the truth and being really interesting on how we tell the truth in a really cool, interesting way mm -hmm. is usually where culture kind of grabs hold of it because it's honest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I feel like, I feel like just jamming culture in something for the sake of doing it I don't think I think that's where you're kind of you're you're faking it. It feels like mm -hmm. marketing mm -hmm. versus being honest and true to something. And I feel like that's what's going to actually create something cool in culture. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, uh, or maybe provide a snapshot if you don't mind, of just some of the stuff you're working on now. Like uh, you were mentioning uh, a certain type of advertising that can sometimes speak truths that people don't want to say or to, to be a, 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 a communication tool in an interesting way. And of course, I think of like the these, for example, these recent Colin Kaepernick ads for Nike that, mm -hmm. that um, really got a lot of attention, a lot of press in their own right. And um, there's any number of other kinds of great commercials that I've been seeing from Nike now, like uh, like I always have, and and um, you know I know that's your principal focus, but um, to the degree that you're able, I, I would love to hear anything you're aware of or could talk about that the rest of the agency is working on in terms of clients and campaigns, like uh, just you know what's going on at Widen that has you excited these days. Um, well, obviously Nike with the Crazy Dreams campaign, I think everyone was super excited about that mm -hmm. um, because. It, it really is showing, especially young people, that um, you can dream even bigger than you thought you could. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that was the point more than anything of telling the next generation of athletes that, that sports and you ha have the potential to do amazing things. And mm -hmm. that, that's what they've always been about, that they believe that sports can make the world better. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we hold that to the work, too, in terms of that we put into the world. That's what gets us the most excited. Right. Um, that, that we believe sports is a, cha a, a change agent for kids. Right. Um, in terms of other work in the building right now, I feel like there's a lot of stuff happening. I feel like the biggest thing that everyone 
is trying to figure out there's, you know, people are consuming media differently. Mm -hmm. and, and how do you kind of make it relevant and interesting on different platforms um, that that you're kind of creating a world around an idea now mm -hmm. that people can kind of experience? Um, so I, I know I'm talking big picture what we're kind of thinking about and what we're excited about. Mm -hmm. But I feel like if you're a creative person right now, the canvases to tell amazing stories are amazing. Like you, you're a journalist, yeah. yet now you're doing a podcast. Yeah. And it's a different way for you to express yourself. Uh -huh. But it's still kind of like the core thing or core story that you love talking about. Mm -hmm. I feel like the same thing is probably true of advertising and communication right now. Just the the formats and the opportunities to express a brand in yeah. lots of cool, interesting ways so it feels like it's more alive. Yeah. That's what I think everyone's excited about. Yeah. Yeah. Because, of course, I, I've been talking about TV commercials and, and things like that, but it might be something entirely different. Like I remember when I visited the Widening Kennedy offices in Japan a, a few years ago, um, I was being shown a, a, an online uh, uh, campaign for a, a Japanese beer company where it was kind of like a live cam showing the hops growing in a field, you know, mm -hmm. and, and just having fun. And, you know, thinking of having fun, that's also part of what is fascinating about the challenge of advertising and that kind of writing and creation is that you've got to speak to all these different tribes and, and different people and, and cultures and communities. And, and that's true for me as a journalist, too. But, you know, I think of widening creating these really inspiring Colin Kaepernick ads, but, you know, also having a way of writing kind of silly uh, advertising that is more like an earworm, like the dilly dilly Bud Light campaign and stuff mm -hmm. you know, you've got to speak to teenagers and kids and suburbanites and urbanites and everything and so what's it like to kind of wear those different hats or kind of speak to those different audiences well i i, I think that we talk a lot about how a brand's a human being mm -hmm. and you can have lots of different emotions when you bring it to life some can be funny and hilarious like dilly dilly some can be more serious and earnest like crazy dreams mm -hmm. but i feel like as you're developing a voice for a brand how do you keep people on their toes and you're expressing it in lots of different ways mm -hmm. to make it feel like it's real? You mm -hmm. know, if, I think if you hit the same note over and over again, I think you're boring. You become wallpaper, especially in the world that we're in right now where gaining people's attention is really hard. Yeah. So how are you going to keep surprising people? How is it going to feel vibrant and interesting? And, and how are you going to map that out over the course of time? that people are like, man, I really love that brand and I love that they keep showing up and surprising me and making me feel like I'm part of this community. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like that's an opportunity for mm -hmm. people right now. Mm -hmm. And does the building aid all this? I guess you've, you know, you've had a lot of years in the building now. And, and so I'm curious, like, I love looking at that atrium and I love taking pictures of it and I like talking about it with people and the smoothness of the concrete and the, <laughs> the catwalks and the, the materials, the wood and all the atrium and stuff. But that's kind of all Arca speak, you know, like, is it is it conducive? Is that building conducive to creativity? I, f I feel like it is the the way that we're set up of an integrated team attacking a problem together. Mm -hmm. So. In a normal world, I'm a media person. Media per person probably is not sitting with a creative team. Mm -hmm. They're probably two different companies, two different cities potentially. Mm -hmm. But the idea that you have creative people, what I do, media, strategy mm -hmm. people, production people, all sitting together to figure something out together, I feel like the people and having the space to actually figure it out together 
because you're in different disciplines, mm -hmm. I think allows for creativity to happen or allows to accelerate creativity because you have people that have different interests or understand different things coming together and they're going to bring a different point of view that's going to take the idea in new places. Right. I feel like that is kind of the cool part of that building is that it's built around teams that know different types of things. Nobody knows any everything. It's not one person can't do it all by themselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But having a group of people that all believe in what they're doing and bringing something new to the table, I feel like that's where creativity is really happening right now. I love it. I love it. Final question. You mentioned uh, before we started the recording that you're from Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Is there any place in Portland that you can go to and get excited about a cheesesteak? Like, is it <laughs> is it Steakadelphia or you know are there other ones? Can can you help me find a good cheesesteak? Okay, this is going to be kind of crazy. When I first moved here in Selwood, mm -hmm. it was called Philadelphia's. I've been there. It's called Phil. They had tasty cakes. They had yep. the cheesecakes. They did not have good rolls. Right. Amoroso rolls from Philly. That is like what you want. Mm -hmm. But now they've become Steakadelphia, I believe. Well, Steakadelphia nope, is you're on right. Powell. Yeah, that's changed. Yeah. But the one place that I was going to say that I have not been to, I think it's called Dr. Philly Cheesesteak. Mm-hmm. Maybe that'll be your spot. Maybe so. Well, uh, in the meantime, Danny, uh, thank you so much yeah. for joining us. And uh, uh, what a fun conversation. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. So there we have it. Thanks again to Brad Clopeville and to Danny Sheniak for telling us about the Widening Kennedy Building. I was thinking about this great work of architecture and how it reveals itself only slowly. From outside, the building looks fairly utilitarian, but then you go inside, whether it's to the wonderful Blue Hour restaurant or into this atrium, and the building really unveils itself. It reminds me of something that writer Anara Verzamenkis wrote about Clopeville and the Oregonians several years ago. Quote, Some architects are deeply engaged in creating new shapes and radical forms, jaw-dropping stuff. Others are more interested in creative buildings that inspire a very personal, internal dialogue, meditative, philosophical stuff. It's a difference between watching fireworks exploding on the horizon or a single star wheeling across the sky. Portland happens to be home to an architect of the more meditative, philosophical camp named Brad Clopeville. Clopeville's interiors, she continues, have a labyrinthine quality. Just when you think you know where you are, stairways seemingly disappear, spaces wrap back around themselves. At times, you are overwhelmed by a feeling of endless vastness, vistas that allow you to glimpse multiple areas of a building at once. And yet there are always clear boundaries, too. Columns, beams, portions of walls that signal a delineation that keep you from going farther, but just barely. End of quote. Yet maybe what's most special about both Wyden and Kennedy itself and Brad Clopeville's firm, Allied Works, is that they have both been incubators of talent. First, there's the fact that there's a large swath of Portland's best architecture firms who were started by Clopeville's former employees. There is Lever Architecture, founded by Thomas Robinson, a former Clopeville disciple. Lever has a way with renovations, too, transforming an old auto repair shop downtown into the Union Way shopping complex, which cuts a spine down the middle of the building and lines it with micro-sized retailers in a very cool way. I also love the five-square house by Lever, which takes a classic American four-square house from the early 20th century and adds a glass cube on top. There's also Wechter Architecture, founded by former Clopeville hire Ben Wechter, whose work has won a host of design awards for houses and projects around the city, and for projects like the Furioso Vineyards Tasting Room in Yamhill County. 
And there's Baby Skidmore, founded by former Allied Works architects Heidi Beebe and Doug Skidmore, whose headquarters for a creative agency, Swift, in the Slabtown district, also transformed a warehouse into a hybrid of historic and contemporary architecture that's teeming with light. These guys are good. Yet it's even more noteworthy to think of widening Kennedy, the ad agency, as a cultural incubator. Not necessarily of its own employees, but in how advertising agencies like this draw from and celebrate the cities they occupy. About 14 years ago, I first got to know a man named John Jay, who for many years was the lead creative director for Widening Kennedy. I wound up writing two or three different articles about John over the years, mostly because he seemed to have a voracious appetite for all kinds of art and culture. Everything it almost seemed except for advertising itself. Quote, everything we do has a cultural context, he told me. We have to be connected to not just advertising and media and corporate people, but to the people making culture move. Far too often, advertisers are observers in the culture, not participants. You need to get your hands dirty and live it yourself. Under the leadership of people like John Jay, who now heads the rapidly growing Japanese clothing brand Uniqlo, Wyndon Kennedy started acting more like a benefactor than a maker of commercials. They started their own record label. They started making films and videos featuring artists and athletes they loved, not as an advertisement for Cheerios or Bud Light or Nike, but out of a desire to prove that the company was genuine. Was this good for business? Yes. But it wasn't just a cynical move to sell more sneakers or cans of Coke. The best businesses are immersed in place and are about more than making money. That's why it's a lot easier to like small local companies, the kinds that don't have shareholders. Any business must turn a profit to survive, of course. But ultimately, it's cultural impact, not dollars, by which we measure a company's long-term success. Today, both Allied Works and Widening Kennedy are established veteran firms with decades of experience. That means it's increasingly becoming time for a new generation to make its mark. That doesn't mean this great architect or this great ad agency are going anywhere soon. But as Dan Wyden retires and with Cloakville now in his 60s, it's time for the new kids to just do it. But since the completion of the Widening Kennedy building, the way we see ourselves as Portlanders has also fundamentally changed. The world has taken much greater notice of us in a way that seems more than a passing fad. Portland is now a creative hub that's part of a constellation of small cities around the world with outsized influence, places like Copenhagen and Kyoto, Amsterdam and Austin. Maybe you could say that we just did it, that Portland itself has come out of the incubator. But if there's anything that advertising teaches us, it's that culture is always changing. The moment Portland stops growing and embracing change is the moment we go back into cold storage. But right now, things are still heating up. And now a quick word of thanks to our show's sponsor, Mutual Materials, who helps make all of this possible. They also have helped make Portland possible in a way since a lot of the city was built with their products. That cool brick building? It could be mutual materials. And that exposed brick wall designed into a coffee shop or store? It might be slim brick tile from mutual materials. And those outdoor spaces with paved patios and retaining walls and fire pits? Those might be made with mutual materials too. So if you're looking for masonry or hardscape products, I recommend you check out mutual materials. In Search of Portland is brought to you by Mutual Materials and X-Ray FM. Thanks to our producers, Malia Boyles, Ed Curtis, and Chase Bross. A big thank you as well to my musician friends in the band Beauty Pill, and particularly songwriter Chad Clark 
for graciously allowing us to use one of their songs for our podcast theme. Thanks as well to Maxwell Griffin for providing graphic design, including our podcast logo. And thanks to Nikolai Kruger for creating original artwork to go with each building and episode. That artwork can be found on our website. And in fact, you can find every episode of In Search of Portland at xraypod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show so far, you might consider leaving us a favorable rating on Apple Podcasts or any of the ilk. And if you've made it this far, thanks again for listening. And please join us next time on In Search of Portland. Bye-bye for now.